Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I am Lori Forner, and I have finally found a moment to hide in my closet to record this introduction and bring a very long-awaited episode to you that was embarrassingly recorded almost a year ago. Now, not only did we record this a year ago, I'm pretty sure I asked them in 2019 to join the podcast and it just took so long to organize, but I have asked two of Southeast Queensland's top physiotherapists. Yes, this is a biased opinion, of course, but I've asked them to come to talk to me about the pelvic health clinic model of care they help to establish here in Queensland hospital settings to improve patient access to care, reduce specialist outpatient waiting lists in gynecology, urogynecology, and colorectal, and highlight the qualifications of physiotherapists in lead clinic roles. Of course, in the midst of my COVID lockdown haze, not only was my poor interviewing skills saved by the brilliance of these two women, I lost the initial recordings, found it months later, and then took forever to edit out all of my stuff ups. And so I can finally share the interview with Jenny Nusifora and Janelle Gracious. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So a very quick background on these two women before diving into the episode. Jenny Nusifora is the clinical lead physiotherapist in the physiotherapy-led Pelvic Health Clinic at Gold Coast Health. This part-time primary contact role with the urogynecology team clinic was established in December 2016 to provide timely conservative management interventions as part of a strategy to reduce the urogynecology waiting lists. Jenny continues to work part-time in her private practice, Focus on Women Physiotherapy, at Benoa Gold Coast which is in Queensland. Um, She has been a women's health physiotherapist for more than 25 years. Her research interests are in improving care of women with urinary incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse and the development of women's health physiotherapists. Janelle is a clinical lead physiotherapist in the Pelvic Health Clinic at QE2 Jubilee Hospital, Metro South Brisbane. This is a part-time primary contact role associated with the gynecology, urogynecology, urology, and colorectal departments of this hospital. This clinic was established in 2016 and is designed to reduce the waiting lists of those clinic specialties by providing conservative care for patients with pelvic floor dysfunction prior to them seeing a medical specialist. Conditions include are urinary or fecal incontinence, urogenital or rectal prolapse, obstructed defecation or constipation. This provides a streamlined model of care following evidence-based practice. Janelle continues to work at Results Physiotherapy Private Practice part-time, treating patients with pelvic floor dysfunction. She has a sessional teaching role at Griffith University in the Gold Coast and Nathan campuses, teaching continence and women's health physiotherapy in the undergraduate and master's of physiotherapy programs. 
Janelle has been involved in teaching assessment and treatment of pelvic floor course offered by the APA since the late 1990s and until the recent introduction of the women's, men's, and pelvic health level one and two courses with the APA. She has been a part of the successful research grant application, which was called to assess the success and acceptability of a physiotherapy management program to treat urinary incontinence in Indigenous women in a community-based Indigenous health service. So finally to the episode. Now we are starting off where Jenny is answering my question as to why we need a model of care for physiotherapists in pelvic health in the public hospital system. I think the whole pelvic health clinic thing started um, probably in about uh, 2012, 13, Janelle and I were both working at Royal Brisbane Hospital, both part-time. Janelle was a senior in women's health and I was um, working in outpatients basically in women's health because I was still at that stage commuting to my private practice on the Gold Coast as well. What we started talking about was there's a very long wait time for patients to see the doctors and once they see the doctors then the doctor says oh you need to have some physio first and that was like could have been over 12 months before they would get to see the doctor then there was a wait time for them to see us even as well. The other thing that was going on at the same time publicly is they were starting these other clinics, these uh, primary contact clinics in physiotherapy for other specialties. So it particularly started out out of orthopaedics and neurosurgery. Those patients who are waiting on the list to see an orthopod would then see the physio first. They would do their assessment, get their exercise program and stuff started, pain management, whatever needed doing. And they would do that while they were on the waiting list to see the orthopaedic surgeon. And so we went, well, why can't that model work in gynaecology? Okay, so our patients at the hospital got referred through gynaecology. We were very lucky at Royal Brisbane because we had very supportive um, bosses and the statewide program for these primary contact clinics was operating out of Royal Brisbane Hospital. And so we had a chat to our director and he said, yeah, sure, let's... um, see what we can do, and um, they found us an initial 12 weeks' worth of funding. So that's what we did, didn't we, Janelle? That's right. I I guess one of the reasons that it fits so well into gynaecology is conditions of urinary incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse, we have really robust international guidelines that recommend three to six months of conservative treatment prior to considering more complex medical care. The problem that was happening in the standard public system is the GP does a referral and they do a referral to a medical specialty, to gynaecology or urogynaecology. And as Jenny said, there was that long wait list. But in the meantime, there wasn't any of this conservative care happening. So once they waited all of this time with no treatment whatsoever, perhaps the condition getting worse over that 12 months. And and the reason there is a long wait is these these conditions are categorised as non-urgent conditions. So they become categorised into the lowest category, which is category three. And in the public hospital system, the the expected standard of care for a Category 3 waiting list is by definition that it can wait up to 12 months for care because it's a non-urgent condition. 
And so I guess in the funding of these services, they use that as a bit of a benchmark and that's that's why there are those long wait times. So because we had good international recommendations for this conservative care, our business case was very strong and there was this temporary funding available and um, luckily we had a really good working relationship with our gynaecology and urogynaecology team. So they actually saw this as a huge advantage for them um, because it was standard for them to refer to physio for those conditions anyway, but they would see the patient, do a referral, they'd go onto a physiotherapy waiting list, um, and in the meantime, the, the specialist would say, we'll review you again in three or four months after you've had your physio. They'd come back for their next specialist appointment and they wouldn't have had any physio yet because they're still sitting on the waiting list. And so it just backlogs the whole system because then the surgeon's got to decide, well, do we keep waiting for you to have physio or do we just bypass the guidelines and go on and offer you surgery as if you've already failed your conservative treatment? And so the, the actual pathway for treatment wasn't really following the standard international guidelines because of that backlog of care. So they would see the doctor and they would just go, let's just do surgery, even if they... See the doctor, they would do a referral to physio. But, yeah. of course, once that referral comes into the physiotherapy department, that gets categorised and triaged um, and goes on a physiotherapy waiting list. And, of course, we've got more acute conditions to see um, even within women's health, in a busy women's health uh, public department, there's acute maternity patients that will uh, come first. Um, and then, of course, the non-urgent conditions like prolapse and urinary incontinence will go on a Category 3 physiotherapy waiting list. And so the waiting time within physiotherapy would also be at least several months. And, you know, then it slows down their whole next level of medical care while they're awaiting that conservative treatment. Whereas within the public health clinic model, it becomes a primary contact where we initiate a physiotherapy assessment and, and this is where the model has to have senior experienced clinicians providing that initial um, assessment because um, it's their first contact for that condition within the public health system. And so there has to be adequate assessment, diagnosis skills um, to be able to provide adequate care and also assess for red flags and um, decide whether that patient needs more urgent care um, or some further medical treatment prior to conservative treatment with physiotherapy being the most appropriate thing for them. So we actually really need those experienced staff if we're going to run in those primary health um, contact roles. And the other important thing with the, the instigation of the clinics was it there was new funding so that um, it wasn't taking away from the current women's health services. There were new funding so because there were new business case models as well. And that was important. Yeah, it's called a novice um, model of care. So it hadn't been offered before. And um, 
it was at the time when the hospitals were looking at waitlist management strategies. So we were very lucky to jump in on that target that Queensland Health were really trying to reduce their long wait lists and, and so the funding um, application really fell into that target. But ongoing, and I'm sure it's the same at QE2 for you, Janelle, like our pelvic health clinic at the Gold Coast is has completely separate uh, new funding for it, So, which is really important because it's increased the numbers of women's health physios in the public system as well. Right, and it's it's created a def, definite career pathway within the public system for very experienced physios to be uh, employed in those those uh, high level roles to get good remuneration for their um, position, and um, it it develops that career pathway for more junior physios to be able to get their experience um, in a stepwise fashion through that model of care. Because both of you have worked both in public as well as private, or you still both work in both public and private. What's it like environment-wise? Like even just putting kind of the pelvic health clinic aside? Yeah, I, I guess that um, discrepancy in, in care between public and private care is not so much in the quality of care that people get, but the discrepancy comes with the long wait times. I believe people get excellent care within public health when they do um, see the clinicians. And the other advantage in the public health system is that we can work in multidisciplinary teams. So one of the things I love about working in public health as opposed to private is that I have a much closer working relationship with the medical specialists, the registrars, the other allied health professionals, the dietitians, the um, pharmacists and um, psychologists than I do within my private clinic. Mm. Um, and there's a, a face-to-face ability to communicate and have meetings together and that's a really robust, excellent working environment. So I guess the inferior care comes when people get frustrated at having to wait a long time. And that's what these clinics are very good at addressing is saying, well, these patients actually do very well before they see the specialist at having physiotherapy treatment. Let's give some funding for that to happen. And um, we talked about having a really experienced physio doing the initial assessment. The the, um, model of care also has treating therapists within the funding system. So once that initial assessment is done and a treatment plan is drawn up from that initial assessment, then a referral kind of goes into the treating physiotherapy team um, for that intensive physiotherapy to happen that we've got such robust evidence. Yeah, there's more funding for the treating therapists because obviously part of the model of care um, shows that and the international guidelines is is that you should give the most intensive treatment uh, that you can um, within your funding model. And so part of what we've tried to do is make sure that people are treated quite intensively. So, you know, being seen maybe fortnightly or weekly or whatever they need for their condition rather than 
um, having to wait three weeks, four weeks or six weeks for a follow-up appointment. And so um, there are more junior therapists under us, the senior therapists, but, again, that's part of the training protocol as well is um, that you get to talk with them and discuss the patients and it's great learning for them and for us about, you know, what's going on with patients' care. Initially, um, you said these people were waiting 12 months to see the medical specialist. Then they'd have to wait to get to the physiotherapy appointment. And then there was a point of time where they might see a specialist but still have to wait for the physio. So there was at least, what, kind of 12 months and then maybe three to six months. And then now what's kind of the wait? And it is a little different in each of the pelvic health clinics. So Certainly in my clinic and when we started at Royal, we used to triage the referrals. Um, so at Gold Coast, either myself or one of the urogynecologists or one of the uh, urogynecology nurses will triage the re- those referrals and select which ones look like from the information that the GP has provided that they would benefit from physiotherapy first. Where I am at the moment uh, at Gold Coast, you know, the patients are getting in to see me probably within a month to six weeks at the most. Um, but our doctor's waiting list to see patients just, you know, that are triaged uh, on that list as well to go straight to see the doctor, they're booking now in maybe like five, six months. I thought, though, too, if someone knew they needed physiotherapy and they wanted to go to the pelvic health clinic, they can request from their GP to go to the physiotherapy department or can they do that? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. The GP can refer direct to physiotherapy. Um, If the GP refers direct to physiotherapy, they don't go in, they don't get categorised into that pelvic health clinic model of care. They'll go directly into our women's men's pelvic health um, service waiting list. So um, our our pelvic health clinics are specifically to deal with those specialist waiting list patients. So, for instance, at the QE2 hospital, we have expanded the service and our clinic um, is related to the gynaecology, urogynaecology, urology and colorectal waiting lists. And we have a specific model of care document um, that has been based on clinic, they call it the clinical prioritisation criteria that exists within Metro South um, for each of those specialties. And so we've picked out certain standard conditions that are automatically triaged to that specialty and to the pelvic health clinic. And that model of care is agreed upon with the medical specialists and the public health clinic physiotherapists. So, for instance, urinary incontinence, um, pelvic organ prolapse, um, some types of pelvic pain, um, a Uh, the functional defecatory disorders like faecal incontinence or obstructed defecation all sit on our inclusion criteria. And it's those conditions um, that are automatically triaged to our pelvic health clinics. And so they'll have pelvic health clinic, which is physiotherapy assessment initially. um, And if that 
primary if that um, senior clinician decides that further physiotherapy is what's warranted for that patient, then they'll refer to the treating physiotherapy team. If they decide, no, this patient shouldn't be sitting category three, they need to be recategorized because we think there's something more urgent, there's red flags or, um, you know, this patient we suspect has a fistula or we suspect they need screening for cancer or something else uh, or we think it's a quarter equina syndrome, then we will actually um, contact the director of gynaecology or the colorectal uh, specialist and give them a bit of a story about our assessment and they'll usually agree with us, yes, we'll change this to a Category 1, book them in next week and, and decide on that. So it's um, it's up to us to assist in that whole triage and recategorization process as well as provide that standard ongoing conservative care for those patients who um, fall into our, our usual conditions and our usual treatment criteria. So just to give you an idea of the categories... A category one is considered um, needs needs urgent care and their condition is likely to, to deteriorate if not seen within 30 days. A category two is semi-urgent and they're considered that they should be seen within 60 days. Is it, no, 90 days. No, 90 it? days. So that's three months basically. And a category three is... Um, a non-urgent condition, um, which by definition is unlikely to deteriorate um, if not seen within 12 months. That makes sense. So, that clears Laurie, some things up. I'll give you an example. Like today I saw a lady who was referred in and it just said for management of uterovaginal prolapse and, you know, so that's a pretty stock standard referral that we would accept but when the lady came in and then we had a look at, I had a look at um, her ultrasound scan that she'd had done her pelvic scan and it said that she had endometrial thickening of, you know, more than six millimetres. She's in her mid-50s. Um, she also has some chronic constipation and she's a celiac and those, those sort of complications. But the big thing was she said, oh, and, I've, and I asked her, I said, oh, you know, is there any family history of... Um, cancers, you know, bowel cancers, bladder cancer, gynae cancers. She said, oh, yeah, my mother died of ovarian cancer at 62. So, and on the ultrasound uh, report, it said, you know, there is increased thickening and possibly warrants further gynaecological assessment. So her GP hadn't flagged that. But for me, I think, okay, that's my responsibility now. I need to talk to my consultant about this. Do they think okay, they'll have a look at that report and go, yep, we probably should see her. We'll make her a Category 2 or we'll make her a Category 1 and we'll see her next week in clinic, depending on how urgent they see that to be. So she's also got some irregular bleeding and there's a bigger picture there. But for me, I went, I'm not happy just leaving this as it is. I'm just treating her for a prolapse. I think I need to talk to someone about her condition and so I can do that. And that's an important part of our role yeah. is to recognise those patients who need to be seen sooner and not just sit on our Category 3 wait list and just be treated with normal conservative management. Okay, I'm just popping into your ears for a minute, not to sell you anything. There's no sponsor for this podcast. 
I just wanted to pop in here to thank each and every one of you who continue to listen to this podcast. Those of you who have sent me messages or share about your enjoyment of listening to these podcasts. And of course, a special thank you to the patrons who donate some of their hard-earned cash to keep this podcast running. So I'm just going to pop into your ears for a minute, not to sell you anything. There's no sponsor for this episode. I just wanted to say thank you to each and every one of you who continue to listen to this podcast. Those of you who have sent me messages or share about your enjoyment of listening to these podcasts. And of course, a special thank you to the patrons who donate some of their hard-earned cash to keep this podcast running. As with all of us, COVID has changed our lives these past 18 months. My initial plan of providing more insightful interviews this past year completely went down the drain when attempting to juggle it with my business, my patients, my family, my PhD, and myself. Like many, I think it's been an emotional roller coaster, and just when I thought we were through most of it and somewhat immune to catching anything from New South Wales and Victoria, I finally got my hands on both my Pfizer jabs. We are back to homeschooling this week. So I just want to express my gratitude for those who continue to listen, despite my lack of regularity in providing episodes, and the increase in abundance of pelvic health podcasts that now surround us. It's funny, the more podcasts in this area, it both makes me feel inadequate at times, but I also feel like it takes a bit of pressure off me. So I hope everyone is taking care of themselves wherever you are, and thank you so much again for listening. Now back to the episode. The way the clinics are set up, they're designed that uh, it is to support extended physiotherapy scope of practice. Um, and so uh, we we do have authority to be able to request urine cultures, for example. We can do bladder scans and uh, have ultrasound available to us to do real-time ultrasound. We can... Um, so not all of uh, the pelvic health clinics can request urodynamics, but definitely Helen at Caboolture can. And Jenny, you can organise it. Yeah, I can organise that because I know that they'll, the doctors would prefer that they have, if I know they're going down that pathway, they need to have their urodynamics before their doctor's appointment so they've got all the information on the table uh, when they have that consultation. As part of offering... Uh, prolapse management, I think all of the pelvic health clinic uh, clinics that are operational all have a pessary trained physio working in them. Um, so I guess that's worth mentioning. Um, and of course, we link in or liaise in with the medical team, the gynecology team in um, what they want that ongoing care of uh, of that patient once they've been fitted with a pessary and they're comfortable with it, uh, whether they want them to stay within uh, long-term review with gynaecology, whether they're, if they've had uh, training in self-management, whether they're able to be discharged back to their GP to assist with um, regular speculum examination or not. So the different um, 
gynaecologists at different centres uh, have different ideas and it depends on whether there's pessary clinics available at that centre, et cetera, for what their long-term care will be. But generally the pelvic health clinic physio will be the one who will initiate the pessary management um, if, if they feel that's the appropriate treatment. One of the other specialties that we can refer directly to through our clinic is psychology, which is great to have as well, because we all know that um, a lot of our patients do have mental health issues or stress and anxiety issues, and um, to have that as uh, part of the treatment team uh, is a real asset as well. A, A lot of our physiotherapy treatment is really making women proactive in their own health care. It's teaching them. Mm. The lifestyle management. Absolutely. Everything from healthy diet for their bowels and um, good fluid intake to pelvic floor exercises and general exercise, uh, you know, healthy lifestyle habits we can refer them to the dietitian for um so we've got dietetics funding within the qe2 pelvic health clinic as well which is exciting because it means they've got time allocated to be able to uh particularly with the colorectal patients that we refer to the dietitian and um obviously the uh, obese women and overweight women we can refer to the dietitian we also can refer to into the smoking cessation program as well, um, which is really exciting because um, the number of people that you recommend to give up smoking and then if you can refer them in the right direction and target it and then you see them a few weeks later and they're on that journey as well. We we can access or refer someone to dietetics if we want to, um, but one of the things that we also did, well, it was 2018 now, uh, um, is we had the set up the Athena program, which is um, is exercise and healthy eating for overweight and obese women with prolapse and urinary incontinence. And so we did a little research project on that as well because um, it was just a feasibility study to see if women would come and whether they would like it. It's a 12-week program. But four of those sessions, uh, exercise sessions, are followed by a dietetic a dietitian session having a chat for half an hour and it's got specific topics about but all focused on healthy eating and stuff and the women just loved it like the feedback about how supportive the program was and um how you know they went from as we know being embarrassed about their incontinence and thinking you know there's no one else out there like me to being feeling so supported in um that kind of exercise group was amazing and also it would be nice if we can, um, if the program um, can be run either online or in person or if you can, you know, you've got people who can't physically get to the group but they could be a part of the group um, online while, while other people in the group are actually in the room would be nice too. So I, I think with offering telehealth appointments across the COVID period, mm-hmm. it's really opened or enabled an, a new dimension in healthcare where um, we all know some of our treatments, uh, we don't do so much physical and more education and uh, teaching and interview style um, treatments. And we can do that over a video call and it, it lets us 
uh, I guess, decide depending on how difficult it is for a patient to access hospital care, whether they're elderly and have a mobility problem and we're working at a big tertiary centre that has parking difficulties and things, we might choose to only bring them in for a certain number of face-to-face consultations and then offer some of the rest as telehealth in the long term. I think it's great that we've had this experience. One of the other things about the pelvic health clinics um, that I wanted to say was I think it's really um, versioned uh, research into women's health, um, you know, it's just helped to foster that and, and funding support through um, our public health service, like a lot of the allied health services now have allied health um, research um, mentors and, um, yeah, funding for physios to get offline time to help do research. And you've been doing some research with the data now? I, well, not now, but you have been <laughs> looking at the outcomes of what you know, this model of care has um, helped with. So can you tell me a little bit about the research that you've been doing in this area? So it was very important back at the start when you set up a new model of care that you collect the data and and you had to show that what we were doing worked and it made a difference in terms of the timeliness of care, um, that patients were happy with the model of care, that they weren't seeing a doctor first, um, and that the clinical outcomes were good, right? So um, we were fortunate to piggyback onto um, something called the Mars database, which base, which starts with measurement and I always forget what all the words are, but it's a measurement, measurement and recording reporting <laughs> system um, that the orthopaedic screening clinics had set up. And so what we did was we then had our Um, women's health um, questionnaires uh, put onto that same database. So um, it was very helpful for collecting the data so that we could then um, easily access it to do the research. So we did um, initially there in Metro North with Helen. Helen got a a new researcher grant um, to get some time off to help do the research and we did a retrospective in that we looked at um, past medical records and how many um, how long it took patients to get to see their doctor how many appointments that they had to have and um, how long they're in care for and then we uh, had a look at those same sort of stats after they had been treated through the pelvic health clinic. Yeah so the retrospective data was prior to the pelvic health clinic model um, taking place mm-hmm. and of course the the um, the prospective data was on based on our outcomes and occasions of service then yeah yeah what have you found with all of it we presented that first research paper at ICS in Florence in 2017 um, and that's what we showed we showed that the women had better access to care if they were just waited for their doctor's appointment at 12 months they'd still be waiting and yet they'd come through a pelvic health clinic model they'd been treated had their number of treatments over four to five months and then discharged and were fine. Some of the data that we actually looked at and part of the model is that if the patient's symptoms are cured, so their condition no longer exists or they're satisfied with their outcome and don't want to seek any further treatment, then they can be discharged from that 
that medical specialist waiting list without even seeing the specialist. So we call them our Category A discharges. Um, And what we found is that we can remove approximately 30% of patients off a gynaecology or urogynaecology waiting list um, if they've got those conditions, urinary incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse, without them ever seeing the specialist. That's continued in that. Just that combined report from the pelvic health clinics from April 2016 to 30th of June this year, it just shows in the seven clinics that are currently pelvic health clinics in Queensland Mm. that we've seen just under 4,000 women have gone through those clinics and 30 to 40% of them have been discharged without needing medical care. Wow. So some of the other outcomes, uh, we looked at the AFPFQ, so the Australian Female Pelvic Floor Questionnaire, as one of our um, outcome measures um, to try and show some clinical um, objective clinical changes. And we found that there was a clinically significant improvement in symptom score across all of the domains um, for patients who'd had pelvic health clinic care. There was also a statistically significant reduction in the waiting time for care. Uh, There was also a significant decrease in the occasions of medical specialist appointments that those patients uh, required once they did see the specialist if they weren't discharged as those Category A patients. So the people that weren't cured but stayed on the waiting list still had better clinical outcomes prior to medical treatment, uh, so they improved during their physio care and they required less medical appointments uh, once they saw the specialist. In fact, what we found was because they'd already had their conservative treatment, the specialist could often decide on their whether they were going to offer them surgery at that first appointment. Um, certainly at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, the urogynecology clinic uh, did urodynamics testing if they if they thought that was the right thing to do at their initial urogynecology appointment. So they could decide then and there, you, need, you know, we would recommend surgery because you've already had six months of pu- intensive pelvic floor muscle training. And so it, it created a very streamlined pathway to, um, to care for these ladies. I love the support for fun, for research as well, like and the opportunities because there's so many people that might want to get involved with research, but they don't want to go and actually do a master's or a PhD. And these are, um, I'm assuming you don't have to do masters in order to work on some of the projects if they're working there. But they, you know, you get a taste of research, um, and as well as to help out. Yeah, each of the research projects, Laurie, you need to decide whether you can do it within the service, so within your current working hours as well as doing your clinical work, or whether you actually need extra funding to be able to do that research and and that's where you look for research grants to be able to do it. So, for example, we have um, been part of a, a research submission with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island um, Centre of Excellence, uh, Medical Centre of Excellence at Inala um, and have been successful in getting a research grant to look at um, physio, providing physiotherapy for, for urinary incontinence 
at the Community Health Centre for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And so that's a project that uh, has been held up by COVID, but hopefully will roll out um, very soon, as soon as um, they're not stopping all the face-to-face things within their, their health service. If you have experienced women's health physiotherapists, you know, this model of care is really good for reducing your waiting lists um, and making a difference to women's lives. So that's um, the other thing that's really important yeah. to know is that there's flexibility in the model of care as well. Mm. Um, I think it's um, obviously different medical specialists have uh, different opinions about about how much trust they'll put in the physiotherapists in making some of those decisions and discharging patients that have been otherwise referred to their clinic and feeling comfortable with how that decision's been made. And what we've actually um, seen is, so for example, in the colorectal uh, waiting list at the QE2 hospital, we don't have... um, we don't have the agreement to discharge patients off the colorectal waiting list before they see the medical specialist. So we can't have a category A patient. Um, And their their reasoning behind that is that um, it's highly likely Uh, that the colorectal surgeon would decide to do a screening colonoscopy on a lot of their patients uh, who have functional colorectal conditions anyway, even if they think it's unlikely to be bowel cancer. It's kind of uh, one of the conditions that colonoscopy is a fairly routine screening test for symptomatic patients. Um, And so they still want to see them at least once to decide if or if, they want to do that or not. Um, But what what we can do is actually recommend that we don't believe that person needs a long appointment for anorectal physiology studies. And so they just book them in for a short appointment, which is a 10-minute appointment as opposed to a one-hour appointment for their initial. Um, And, you know, that really saves the specialist time. And, and again, they might just see them for that short 10-minute appointment and then discharge them. So it just shows how with different specialists' um, ideals and within the different specialties, they don't have to follow exactly the same model of care, but you can come up with a collaborative approach, how the clinic will still help their waiting list and and be really effective care for their patients. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Don't forget to check the show notes. I'll put links for some of the things that we talked about and the research that has come out of what these women have been working on. Take care.